0: Welcome to the lead. I'm Jake Tapper, and we begin today with the politics lead. This afternoon, President Biden laid out his plan to implement the massive $1.9 trillion relief package called the American Rescue Plan. The president saying soon there will be more vaccines in arms and more money in pockets. Amidst criticisms and concerns that the huge package is insufficiently targeted and could potentially cause inflation, President Biden also announced that a former top economic official for Obama and Clinton, Gene Sperling, will lead the effort to maximize every penny of the stimulus the president vice president and their spouses hit the road today from vegas to near philly for what the white house is calling the help is here tour touting the massive legislation this comes as president biden is setting new goals for the nation to begin the path out of this pandemic and to help reach those goals The Biden administration is now devoting $250 million to try to encourage skeptical Americans, many of them Trump supporters, to get the vaccine, as CNN's Phil Mattingly
1: now reports. Shots in arms and money in pockets.
2: With stimulus checks already hitting bank accounts, President Biden now in an
1: all-out sprint to promote the $1.9 trillion COVID relief law. The American Rescue Plan is already doing what it was designed to do make a difference in people's everyday lives. And ensure there are no errors as it's put into place.
2: The devil is in the details. Biden naming Gene Sperling a top economic official in the last two Democratic administrations to oversee the law's implementation.
1: Gene will be on the phone with mayors and governors, red states, blue states, the source of constant communication, a source of guidance and support and above all, a source of accountability. All is
2: Biden's team hopscotches states around the country over the next week, with Vice President Kamala Harris and Second Gentleman Doug Imhoff heading to Nevada, First Lady Jill Biden in New Jersey, and Biden himself joining the Blitz with two trips in the coming days. A highly coordinated effort to promote elements of the new law, from the stimulus payments to the housing aid to the small business funding.
0: President Biden has directed the administration to deliver the two things that will most hasten our ability to recover, checks and shots. And as he said, help is on the way.
2: But when it comes to vaccine hesitancy, Biden says former President Trump telling his supporters to get the shot will make less of a difference.
1: The thing that has more impact than anything Trump would say to the MAGA folks is what the local doctor, what the local preachers, what the local people in the community say.
2: All as the administration continues to grapple with a growing crisis at the southern border. We recognize this is a big problem. With thousands of unaccompanied minors in custody, the administration's promise for a more humane approach to the border is
3: being tested in a major way. This is a big challenge, uh, and it certainly is a reflection of using every lever of the federal government to help address that.
2: And Jake, you mentioned the 250 million dollars that will go in part to trying to boost vaccine, the vaccine rollout. But as the president mentioned there there is a recognition inside the White House right now that when it comes to reaching Republicans, when it comes to reaching conservatives, Democrats, and the messages from the White House probably aren't the best way to go about it. In fact, Dr. Anthony Fauci and Dr. Francis Collins will be meeting with evangelical leaders tomorrow, again trying to meet people at the the folks that they respect most, trying to get the message across. Now is the time to get
0: vaccinated, Jake. All right. All right, Phil Manningly at the White House, and let's talk about this issue with retired Admiral Dr. Bred Giroir, who led the testing effort under former President Trump and was a member of the Trump White House Coronavirus Task Force. Dr. Giroir, thanks for joining us. So here's the problem. In a CNN poll, 46 percent of Republicans say they will not try to get a vaccine. And obviously, there's one person with a lot of influence over that group, former President Trump. Do you think he should be actively encouraging his followers to get the vaccines that were developed under his own administration, under the Trump administration's Operation Warp
4: Speed? Well, thanks for having me on. And of course, the answer is yes. I think all of us in the medical community, um, in the liturgical community. And I think it's very important for uh, former President Trump, as well as the vice president, to actively encourage all the followers to get the vaccine. This is something that the Trump administration developed under its time, and uh, I think all of the above, including uh, the former president speaking out, would be very important. So that's why it's so confusing, because
0: we're talking about saving the lives of of MAGA supporters, uh, not just uh, fellow Americans, but specifically people that he has reached to. Was it a mistake for him, President Trump, to get vaccinated secretly, behind closed doors, instead of doing so publicly? Did you know about it at the time? Do you know why the decision was made to keep it secret?
4: Um, I did not know uh, that he was vaccinated uh, until I uh, heard it uh, as it was reported in the news. Um, I get a little hesitant to uh, to uh, make judgments about people's you know, private medical decisions about whether there could have been you know, potential uh, issues that he did not want to make it public. But I think the point now is, and I think this is where we are, that we all have to get together and urge every American. um, The people who follow uh, former president are very committed to President Trump. And I think his leadership still matters a great deal. And I think we have to do a better job reaching the minority and underserved communities that have been so disproportionately affected. I think those are really two major goals. We've done a great job with the elderly. Uh, We're doing a great job getting vaccines in arms, and I want to commend the Biden administration for their building on the program. But we do need to focus on the vaccine hesitant, which you pointed out, as well as the underserved and minority communities.
0: We've heard Vice President Kamala Harris say, quote, there was no national strategy or plan for vaccinations uh, when they started. And Dr. Fauci said under Trump there was only a vague plan for, on a national level, getting vaccine doses into American arms Um, Could the Trump administration have done more to set up a national program uh, to get the vaccines not just to the states, but into the arms?
4: Um, I think this is a false narrative uh, that was propagated, and I have not heard either the president or the vice president say those words in the last few weeks. Look, when we left office, there were plans to procure 900 million doses with 2 billion extra doses on an option. We had enrolled 70,000 vaccine sites, including 40,000 pharmacies. We had enabled uh, pharmacists, pharmacy interns, pharmacy techs, any emergency medical technician to provide those. So, look, I think the Biden administration has done a good job adding on to the plan, like with some of the mass vaccination sites. But there was a clear strategy and plan. On the day that President Biden took office, 1.5 million doses went into people's arms. We were averaging almost a million per day, which was a tremendous accomplishment. The foundation was there. Um, There's no reason to cast dispersions. This is a great American story. A Republican administration started this, laid the foundation. The baton has been passed, and the Biden administration are taking it even to greater levels. That's the way I see it.
0: When when President Biden took office, uh, the U.S. was administering Uh, just under a million doses a day, as you note. Uh, Now the nation's averaging 2.4 million doses a day. You think, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, that the Biden administration does deserve some credit for ramping up the speed with which the vaccinations
4: are going into arms. So I I think the ramp up is, is approximately the same as we would have predicted under the Trump administration. What I think he's done very well in terms of vaccines into arms is, number one, I think the mass vaccination sites focusing on health equity is a really good idea, and I think that's an idea that he brought. I think broadening the PrEP Act, which he did last week, so that uh, physicians assistants and dentists could provide vaccines. I think those are all positive steps. And I also think reengaging with the World Health Organization um, is going to yield benefits far beyond this pandemic. So I think he's done some very good things and positive things, but it's built on the foundation that we built in the Trump administration. And that's the way it should be. There's no 180 degree turns. This has been a relatively smooth transition. And I think the vaccines and the rollout or a true American uh, success story.
0: A review conducted by the Biden administration found that some Trump-era CDC guidance was not grounded in science or free from, quote, undue influence. For example, some guidance on reopening schools that has been removed from the agency's website. Uh, what's your response to this? W- what kind of interference did you see uh, during your time working, uh, not for the CDC, but for the Trump White House? Or for the HHS, you know, rather?
4: I, you know Yeah. um, So, you you know, there was always discussions about the implications, the broad implications of what a guidance would have. But I personally did not see political interference in anything that the CDC did. And Bob Redfield and I were uh, very close and in close communication. Certainly testing uh, in CDC was under me. I know there was some back and forth uh, from uh, lower-level agency officials, but they had no influence. So, uh, you know, I, I mean it, Jake. I have not. I did not see the political influence. We started every day with data and science. The vice president clearly supported that. So, from my knowledge point, certainly around testing and what I saw of CDC guidance, I, you know, I just didn't see it. Might have happened. I can't you know, prove a negative. Right. Uh, but uh, I just didn't see it. So the big news today, uh, and we should make sure that uh, viewers in the United States
0: understand uh, that the AstraZeneca vaccine is not in the United States. Uh, we have Pfizer, we have Moderna, we have Johnson and Johnson. But AstraZeneca is being used in other parts of the world. And today, Spain, Germany, France, Italy, all joined other countries in pausing the use of that vaccine, again, it's not in the US, not an issue here, um, because of a report of the injection potentially causing blood clots. Uh, AstraZeneca might proceed to submit its vaccine to the US for authorization. Um, Do you see this as potentially the first vaccine that the FDA might reject?
4: So, uh, again, I don't have any special insight into the data um, from Europe, But uh, the FDA will certainly look at this, right? Um, It's not uh, eight months ago when we were desperately in need of a vaccine that even were 50% effective. As you pointed out, the three vaccines that are authorized here are all highly effective. Uh, The Novavax preliminary data, extremely highly effective. So I'm sure the FDA will look. It's not just efficacy, but it's safety. And if there's an adverse safety signal or a harm signal, um, they're not gonna authorize it. I I do have faith in the process. It is transparent, as it was under our administration, um, and, and it'll get a good look. But I, as you pointed out, and thanks, Jake, for saying this, uh, this vaccine is not in the U.S. Yeah. Americans need to be 100 percent confident that what they're getting is safe and effective and is not this vaccine. Please go get vaccinated. Have you been vaccinated? And if so, which one? I, I have been vaccinated. Um, um, I'm not going to go into my medical history, but I just completed my second dose. Um, I received Pfizer. I would have been absolutely pleased to receive Moderna or Johnson & Johnson. They're all truly medical breakthroughs. I would have happily had uh, any of them um, and certainly encourage everyone when it's your turn in line, as it was my turn in line um, here at my uh, private physician, uh, to get to get vaccinated.
0: All right, Dr. Bredger was saying get vaccinated. He did. Thank you so much. Good to see you again. Good to see you. Thanks, Jake.
4: A lot of places are easing
0: COVID restrictions as more Americans get the vaccine. But one university is ordering all undergraduates to stay in their dorms. Then CNN goes to a town where children crossing the border by themselves are being housed. That's next. Stay with us. In our national lead now, a growing number of Democrats are asking the Biden administration to make urgent changes at the border amid a massive surge in the number of migrants. Today, Congresswoman Ilhan Omar, Omar, Democrat of Minnesota, called on President Biden to end contracts with states and cities who use prisons to house migrants. Congressman Henry Cuellar, who represents a district on the Texas-Mexico border this weekend, urged the administration to more forcefully warn migrants in Central America not to make the trip. On the Republican side, House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy today toured the border and blamed the Biden administration's less severe policies for the recent surge. A surge that has left many families desperate on both sides of the border, as CNN's Rosa Flores reports.
5: As tens of thousands of migrants make the dangerous journey to the U.S. southern border. Someone stole all her money along the way. Many discover that getting here is just the beginning. Some migrants describe crowded immigration processing centers. She says it was packed with people. Without showering facilities. Did they let you shower? And some say they slept under a bridge overnight. On pebbles and sand while waiting to get transported to immigration processing facilities. Once there, migrants say they get three meals a day. This, as CNN learns about 4,200 unaccompanied migrant children are in Border Patrol custody. Attorneys blowing the whistle this weekend about children in overcrowded and unsanitary conditions at this massive temporary immigration processing center in Donna, Texas where unaccompanied children, including many under 10 years old, are being held, some for five to seven days, which is against U.S. law. Peter Shea is a lawyer representing thousands of unaccompanied minors in federal custody and says capacity at the Donna facility is 1,000 detainees, and right now it's holding about 2,000.
1: It is an untenable situation that the administration needs to address immediately.
5: The head of Homeland Security directed FEMA to help create more shelters for unaccompanied children and move them out of Border Patrol custody quickly. DHS says Border Patrol officials do everything they can to take care of unaccompanied children in their care. As for mothers entering with children, many are released by Border Patrol at this bus station in Brownsville. Why did you come here? Trabajo no She says the economic crisis in her country is very severe. The reasons migrants say they're trekking to the United States varies. Some, like Selvin Melgar, says he lost everything during a recent hurricane in Honduras. (laughs) And Marisol Ramirez, who says the toughest part of her journey was when her daughter was hungry and she had no food, says she's here because of the lack of jobs and the abundance of violence in her home country you're taking a live look at the immigration processing center here in donna texas cnn has made repeated requests to border patrol and customs and border protection to get access to this facility and other facilities like it and that access has been denied today we also asked about those migrants who we met and they told us that they slept under the bridge overnight on the dirt while they were waiting to get transported to a processing facility and jake We have not heard back.
0: All right, Rosa Flores at the border. Thank you so much. Let's discuss. uh, Nia, there's now bipartisan pushback against the Biden administration on the border, but instead of visiting firsthand, the president and his team, they're traveling to promote the the COVID relief deal. Um, Is this a smart strategy by the White House to, to not go there?
6: Well, listen, we'll see what the president ends up doing in the coming days. From what we can tell about President Biden, he is someone who listens uh, to the progressives in his party, and they are among uh, the loudest folks who are talking about this crisis uh, at the border. It has been years in the making. We obviously uh, saw what happened under the Trump administration. We saw what happened uh, under the Obama administration, too, and similar uh, things. And now we see uh, there is this surge, and partly, at least uh, Biden's critics are saying it's partly uh, a surge because the Biden administration has had a more humane policy uh, towards folks who are traveling uh, uh, over the border, children in particular, and that's why you see this surge. But we'll see what the president ends up doing. He obviously wants to highlight what's going on with this COVID relief package, but he does need to have some insight, I think, into what's going on uh, at the border and also uh, suggest to the country that it is a a sort of different approach that this administration uh, is taking because you have had uh, for years and years and years progressives really complaining about uh, what was happening down at the border under President Trump. And now you see similar the kind of kids in cages uh, imagery that we see out of the border now and some of the inhumane treatment that some of them might be getting.
0: Yeah, although, Franco, we should note, I mean, uh, the, the Trump uh The Trump administration's harsh policies at the border, notwithstanding, there was a surge in 2019. Still, what's going on today is going on. Uh, White House Press Secretary uh, Jen Psaki will not call the situation at the border a crisis. She also turned down the chance today to call it a disaster. She's saying it's a, quote, big problem. Why is there such a fight over the language here?
7: I mean, it's a lot. It has a lot to do about politics. I mean, Biden does not. Uh, the Biden administration does not want to play into the Republicans narrative that they are trying to paint, that this is, quote unquote, Biden's crisis. He does not want to play into that game. And as you just note, uh, you know, this is a complicated matter. I mean, they are really trying to, you know, do have dual messages, perhaps, uh, you know, conflicting messages on the one hand, present a humane, humane approach, but on the other hand, try to send a message not to come at this time but you are right you know this has happened back in the obama administration in 2014 and it absolutely happened in 2018 19 under trump so they were definitely migrants were definitely coming despite trump's harsh very harsh policy
0: yeah and and franco i want to get your reaction to what we heard from republican uh leader kevin mccarthy at the border uh today take a listen
2: when i talk to the doctor to see when they're being tested for COVID.
0: When they get out,
2: more than 10% are testing positive. While you're being stored together. In a time when the president will keep our country closed, and when maybe we have hope for a 4th of July to get together just with our family, how much spread of COVID is he creating every single day by his policies along this border?
0: Well, first of all, as you note... Trump had harsh policies, and that didn't stop people from trying to get into this country illegally in 2019. There there was a surge, and Kevin McCarthy didn't criticize Trump for that. But beyond that, he didn't seem to be this worried about COVID spreading during packed Trump rallies or at the Trump White House, but all of a sudden he's invoking these fears of diseased immigrants coming in.
7: Yeah, I mean, it, it is part of politics of Washington today. It's very unfortunate. Uh, to attack migrants, to attack immigrants, to attack, you know, the quote unquote other that are coming here and using them as kind of a tool uh, to kind of present, to kind of paint them as kind of a danger to the United States. Um, It's, uh, you know, it's it's an unfortunate uh, reality of the politics um, of the day. And I think that is one of the things that the Biden administration is at least trying to combat against. But they do have a very, very, uh, you know, difficult situation on hand. It is a crisis at this moment, hence why they're sending FEMA in uh, to address it.
0: And and Nia, um, we don't have time to run the clip, but it's been airing since he said it. Uh, Republican Senator Ron Johnson of Wisconsin said he did not feel threatened at all uh, during the Capitol uh, insurrection, but he would have been fearful if it was Black Lives Matter protesters. What did you think of that?
6: Well, listen, I I think what he said was pretty obvious. Uh, We know that the reaction if those were Black Lives Matter uh, protests would have been different uh, from Republicans, would have been different uh, from the posture of law enforcement as well. That is obvious. In some ways, I'm glad he said this because it does uh, inject into this very uh, clear story uh, that race played a part in not only uh, the reaction from law enforcement, but also in terms of the motivations of those folks who were there. Uh, They were fearing, in many ways, a kind of multiracial democracy. That's what they wanted to overthrow. And so you had uh, Ron Johnson essentially saying that those folks uh, were fellow travelers and wouldn't have been uh, if they were Black Lives Matter protesters who were asking uh, for kind of a broader, a more inclusive America. So listen, I think Ron Johnson was in many ways just stating the obvious.
0: Yeah, I know. Republican members of Congress who felt plenty threatened uh, that day. Nia, Franco, thank you so much to both of you. Appreciate it. One of the women who has accused New York Governor Andrew Cuomo of sexual harassment just spoke to investigators. That story next. In our politics lead today, New York City Mayor Bill de Blasio says that the scandals surrounding Democratic New York Governor Andrew Cuomo are, quote, making it harder to get things done, unquote. The vast majority of New York's congressional leadership now calling for Cuomo to resign. But according to a new Siena College poll, 50 percent of New Yorkers do not think Governor Cuomo should step down. Thirty-five percent say he should resign immediately. CNN's Bryn Gingrass joins me now. And Bryn, Governor Cuomo now has yet another scandal to deal with involving his vaccines are
8: yeah, that's right, Jake. This reporting coming from the Washington Post is concerning Larry Schwartz, as you mentioned, is the state's vaccine czar. He's also a longtime friend and advisor of Governor Cuomo. And this reporting is that Schwartz made phone calls to a number of county executives across the state, sort of getting a feel for how their loyalties lie with the governor amid all these allegations and investigations uh, that he's currently facing. And in those same conversations, uh, the reporting is he was also talking about vaccine distribution. Now, it bothered one county executive so much that he actually filed a notice of impending ethics complaint with the New York Attorney General's office. Now, CNN is still working to fully report this, but we did get a statement from Governor Cuomo's office, his legal counsel, which in part, I'll read it to you, it says, any suggestion that Larry acted in any way unethically or in any way other than in the best interest of the New Yorkers that he selflessly served is patently false. And we also know that Schwartz released a statement to the New York Times saying that what's being reported is just simply not true. But yes, as you mentioned, Jake, another controversy in front of the governor.
0: Yeah, it sure looks shady. Um, Meanwhile, you have some new reporting about Charlotte Bennett, who is one of Cuomo's accusers, meeting with the state investigators. What can you tell us?
8: Yeah, this tells us, Jake, that this New York Attorney General's investigation into all these sexual harassment allegations, well, it just took a big step forward. That meeting happened over Zoom today, as we understand from Charlotte Bennett's attorney, Deborah Katz. It lasted for four hours, again, over Zoom. And she also provided more than 120 pieces of documents to investigators to corroborate what she says are sexual harassment allegations against Governor Cuomo. And I just want to mention quickly, she also says that she provided detailed information about the sexually hostile work environment the government fos- governor fostered in both his Manhattan and Albany offices and his deliberate effort to create rivalries and tension among female staffers on whom he bestowed attention. So it's very interesting details in the part of the investigation. But like I said, it's a big step forward for that particular investigation, Jake.
0: All right, Bryn Gingrath staying on top of this investigation as always. Thanks so much. Coming up uh, in the National lead two men are now in custody, charged with assaulting Brian Sicknick, that's the U.S. Capitol Police officer who died after the January 6th riots. Federal authorities say images from police body cameras show the two men spray a toxic chemical aimed at three officers, including Officer Sicknick. I wanna bring in CNN's Jessica Schneider. And Jessica, there are other images, we're told, that help investigators build their case against these two.
9: Yeah, that's right. So this criminal complaint, Jake, it goes step by step and it uses surveillance video clips and body camera snapshots to really lay out how these two men allegedly attacked these officers. Notably though, they are not charged with killing Officer Sicknick. At this point, they're charged with working together to plan and assault at least three officers who were guarding the Capitol grounds that that day. That includes Officer Sicknick, who of course died one day later. So investigators say one body camera photo, it shows 32-year-old Julian Cater. Uh, He's in a Trump hat there. 39-year-old George Tanios in the red hat. They say they're beginning to talk there about chemical spray, and Cater takes the can. It's in his right hand. Then there's body camera footage of uh, this shot, Cater in the top right corner. Investigators say it shows him holding a canister and then spraying it in the direction of Several police officers, including Officer Sicknick. So Sicknick and two others are struck with the chemicals. They retreat from the line and you can see them bent over there. They're holding their hands over their faces. So the criminal complaint reveals that all of these officers, they were temporarily blinded. One officer even had scabbing under her eyes that lasted for weeks. Of course, we know Sicknick was also injured. We know that he later collapsed in his office. He was admitted to the hospital and he died a day later, but still no official cause of death. And late breaking this afternoon, we actually just got this mugshot of George Tanios. Right now, both men are in custody. And Jake, they did have their court appearances today. They'll be held until a future court date.
0: And and we still don't have a cause of death for Officer Sicknick. And as you know, these two men have not been charged with Sicknick's murder,
9: Could that change? It could change because, of course, early on we were told that this was a federal murder probe. But that could be part of this continued investigation. The charges right now against these two men are for assault and conspiracy, among others. But, Jake, of course, it's always possible that additional charges could be added, especially if it's determined definitively how Officer Sicknick died, something we don't yet know.
0: All right, Jessica Schneider, thank you so much. Appreciate it. This is not from before the pandemic. The biggest trend for spring break may be going maskless on the beach and in the clubs. What might that mean for the pandemic and for the variants now spreading in the U.S.? Stay with us. We're back with our health lead now. The U.S. average of daily new coronavirus cases is down 10 percent from from this time last week. The number of deaths from the virus is down 20 percent just in the last week. And one in five Americans is now at least partially vaccinated against the virus. That's the good news. The bad news, there are also new concerns over spring break, as CNN's Nick Watt reports.
10: Here's a split screen of our current situation. On the right, a record high 3.2 million vaccine doses in arms reported Saturday. But on the left, that's Miami Beach on Saturday.
6: We have seen footage of people enjoying spring break festivities maskless. This is all in the context of still 50,000 cases per day.
10: Back to the good news. More than one in five Americans have now received at least one shot.
0: We are accelerating vaccinations in anticipation of meeting the president's goal, being ready to be open up all vaccinations to all adults by May 1st at the latest.
10: Today in every single state and D.C., teachers can get vaccinated. Meantime, a new study suggests that if kids and teachers all mask up, then whether it's six feet or just three of social distance doesn't make any difference. The CDC is very well aware that data are accumulating, making it look more like three feet are okay under certain circumstances, which would make it much easier for more schools to reopen. Expect an update to the CDC's guidelines soon. It won't be very long, I promise you. Meanwhile, college kids at Duke now in a seven-day lockdown after 180 confirmed cases last week, driven by parties, say college officials who warn, if this feels serious, it's because it is. These past four days, the busiest air travel since this pandemic began, Wednesday is... St. Patrick's Day! (laughs) And of course, there's this... But with more contagious variants circulating, sobering tales from Europe for those South Florida throngs take Italy, where case counts are climbing once more and fast. Why Europe?
6: They simply took their eye off the ball. I'm pleading with you for the sake of our nation's health. These should be warning signs for all of us.
10: Meanwhile, today, Italy, France, Spain and Germany temporarily suspended use of the AstraZeneca vaccine while authorities investigate some safety concerns. AstraZeneca says there is no evidence their vaccine might cause blood clots. It's not yet authorized here in the U.S. Now, one thing driving that surge in the, in Europe right now is that new variant first discovered in the UK, more contagious, more deadly. And today the CDC confirmed they say that variant will be dominant here in the U.S. within the next few weeks. Jake.
0: All right, Nick, thanks so much. Coming up, they are the innocent, a CNN exclusive inside Syria, talking to the children who, who know nothing but war. In our world lead today, 10 years of the Syrian civil war, which is still raging on, 10 years. In March 2011, Syrians tried to follow other Arab nations and call out their oppressive government, prompting Syrian dictator Bashar al-Assad to try to put the protests down. And now, 10 years later, more than 400,000 Syrians have been killed, many at the orders of Assad. CNN's Arwa Damon returned to Syria And she talked to some of the youngest victims of this war in this CNN exclusive.
5: What do I
3: do? Use a bucket of water? A blanket? I tried using my hands like this to put out the flames. I couldn't. Omar's son's body was a ball of fire. Sultan was playing on his bike when a rocket blew up fuel canisters nearby. An ambulance brought Sultan to Turkey. He and his mother have been there ever since. This is the last photo of Sultan before the airstrike. No, you are not ugly. You are beautiful, Amar constantly tells him. Sultan has an utterly disarming smile, with eyes that fluctuate between sparkling like a 10-year-old should, but at times darken as his past sets in. He has these nightmares where he's on fire. His whole body's on fire. Even his eyes are on fire. And he wakes up screaming, screaming for his mother to, to put out the flames. Sultan is as old as Syria's war itself, a life that carries the emotional and physical scars of a nation. When he was five, his baby brother was killed in a bombing. When Sultan was six, his father died in a strike on the market. (laughs) This is where Sultan was born into unimaginable violence, where he lost so much. A gray, dusty town of smothered childhood laughter, stolen. By war?
1: Uh,
9: Ninad's
3: family did not know that mines were daisy-chained along the wall of their home. Her grandfather shows us where the first one went off.
9: She was swinging off the door
1: with her
3: siblings, and then all of a sudden there was just had an, had an explosion been, from a mine right we there. She lost her left leg under the knee. She has a prosthetic now. She says her father disappeared a decade ago at the start of Syria's war. She tells us he was blindfolded, and she was thrown to the ground in a forest. It's the longest sentence she speaks. Mostly, she gives one-word answers or falls silent. Her grandfather says he feels like she's just gone blank. She doesn't dream of a life without war because she can't even imagine it. It's been over a year since we were last here covering Russia and the Syrian regime's most intense assault on what remained of rebel-held territory. There's been a ceasefire in place since then that has been, relatively speaking, holding. COVID-19 peaked here late last year. Now ICU beds are mostly empty. It's all sandbagged underneath here just in case there's more bombing that resumes. This is a pediatric hospital, one of the few that remains intact. Sa'id is two and a half months old and severely underweight. They've they've seen a threefold increase in malnutrition cases um, in this clinic alone for a number of reasons. Years of bombings and displacement leading to greater poverty and then further fueled by COVID-19 border closures and humanitarian aid slowing down. We pass ramshackle camps. With each bombardment, more of them blotted the countryside. A decade, for so many, a lifetime of compounded trauma. The past permeates everything. For most, there's not a month, a week that goes by that isn't the anniversary of the death of someone they loved. Perhaps all that is left to save are the shreds of innocence of a scarred generation.
0: It's absolutely heartbreaking. Arwa uh, joins me now live from Syria. First of all, thank you for filing that, that moving and brave report. So sadly, war might be normal to these children. They've known nothing but. But are, are their parents, do they have any hope that the violence will end at some point?
3: They do, Jake, in the sense that one really can't live without hope. But then again, hope is such a cruel beast and Syrians have seen that hope crushed over and over again. The adults here, those children's parents, they can't even begin to come to terms with what it is that they have been through. The kids most certainly can't even begin to wrap their minds around it or cope with this tornado of emotions that they are going through. and one of the many aspects that have been that has been very painful uh, for the population that we've been speaking to has been what they feel like is this ongoing indifference and apathy. You know, a few years ago when we would come in, we would get swarmed by people saying things like, why doesn't the world care? Aren't they watching what's happening? How can they allow this to happen? They don't even bother asking us those questions anymore because even though they've had a voice for the last decade, their voice hasn't mattered. The numbers of dead and displaced haven't mattered. Because, Jake, when it comes to the lives of the innocent in this country, they are negated because bigger
0: geopolitical games are at play. All right, Arwa Damon, thank you so much. We'll be right back. Lastly, from us today, 535,000 people have died from coronavirus in the U.S., and today we'd like to take the time to remember just one. Her name was Ruth Sanders. She was an award-winning high school science teacher in Georgia. She taught for almost 40 years. She was affectionately known as Mother Physics. She loved telling people about the time she ran into Albert Einstein in a Princeton lab. She died just shy, just two weeks shy of her 90th birthday. May her memory be a blessing. Our coverage on CNN continues right now.
11: When you work, you work next level. When you play, you play next level.